City Club is uh, indeed honored this afternoon to welcome as our speaker uh, Major General Gary L. Saylor, the Adjutant General and the Commanding General of the Idaho National Guard. His public, office, uh, public information officer came to me a moment uh, before the program began uh, inquiring if I was going to introduce the general, and I said, I, indeed, I was. And uh, he slipped me a little note to indicate that uh, General Saylor is a major general. Uh, I didn't say to him, but I thought, as I got that note, as a former private first-class general in the United States Army, I do recognize a major general when I see one, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. <clears throat> General Saylor is a graduate of North Dakota State University at Fargo. Uh, his degree is in history and in education, and he was a participant in the Reserve Officer Training Corps there. In 1971, when he graduated, uh, he received his commission in the United States Air Force. His first operational assignments had to do with flying combat missions throughout Southeast Asia. All of you remember those dates, 1971, and Southeast Asia brings to all of our minds very certain images. The general has, since that time, come to Idaho. 1977, he came to uh, our fair state and Gowan Field, and he has been there and has served in a number of different responsible leadership assignments at Gowan Field and in the Idaho National Guard since that time. He flew for 392 hours in combat missions, and he has received a number of very remarkable awards and decorations during his career. The Legion of Merit, the Meritorious Service Medal, the Air Medal with Silver Oak Leaf Clusters, and on and on. And it is a great pleasure for us and an honor, as I indicated, to welcome a man who has been so widely recognized for his service and for his valor. It was in 2010 that he was appointed Adjutant General and Commanding General of the Idaho National Guard. And as Mark has indicated to us, he will speak this afternoon to us with respect to the role of the citizen soldier since 9-11. General Saylor. Well, thank you very much for that uh, very kind and gracious introduction. Uh, I'm... Uh, Thank you, Senator Davis. I was going to acknowledge you, and that's a great way to do it, to, to get that microphone so I can so you can hear me. Um, I was uh, watching the screen scroll through the uh, speakers and the kinds of uh, topics that you've covered in this forum over the last couple of years, and of course, um, the upcoming ones, and I'm in awe of the things and the topics that you've discussed. So I hope today to bring you that perspective from the National Guard perspective um, what's happened uh, specifically we will talk about the Army National Guard because uh, the only air missions we have are in southwest Idaho there at Gallon Field um, up and down the eastern part of the state uh, you all are familiar with the, the soldiers 
in the units over here, so I would like to focus most of my comments on what's happened to them. Um, as uh, Mr. Hopkins said, uh, my role, i just give you a little background about the National Guard to begin with. My role is to uh, work directly for the governor, and I supervise the Army and the Air National Guard units throughout the state of Idaho. Um, in addition to that, the Bureau of Homeland Security Emergency Management also follow, falls under the military division. So that's kind of my scope and my responsibility. Um, earlier, uh, we heard that you have these forums on a regular basis and you have a very open and congealed forum and discussion. Um, that's not like my staff meetings, I'll tell you. There's usually a lot of pounding fists on the table and yelling and screaming and then I get to be the referee and we go from there. So I'm hoping there won't be a lot of yelling and screaming today, but if you want to scream, go ahead. Okay, as uh, you may or may not know, the National Guard really has two roles. We have a federal role, and my responsibility, our responsibility in that, uh, in that role is to make sure that we have soldiers trained and equipped and ready to support the president during a time of mobilization or call-up. It's our federal mission, the same federal mission that the active forces have, the same federal mission that the reserve component has. Next slide. What those two branches or those two parts of the service don't have is a state mission. We have a very defined state mission in the National Guard as well. We respond to the call of the governor, to the needs of the citizens of Idaho, when there are emergencies that require manpower, support, and guard unique equipment throughout the state of Idaho. On a day-to-day -day basis, our commander-in-chief is the governor, unlike the active forces or the reserve components that are scattered throughout Idaho. Their day-to-day -day commander is obviously the president of the United States. The National Guard has been called upon a number of times. Uh, in the late uh, 90s, we had a series of years where we had a lot of snow, uh, re re resulted in some flooding. Uh, resulted in some schools in the northern part of the state that had so much snow on the roofs. We mobilized the guard to clean clean the snow off the roof. And obviously, we've had uh, fires throughout the state in the last few years. All of those have been situations where the governor has called the guard and we have served. The equipment, the training um, that we get to perform our federal mission transfers very easily to help the state and the citizens during times of domestic need. Uh, luckily, uh, last spring we were all uh, preparing for the worst uh, in Idaho, both the North Idaho and certainly this part of the state had snowpacks uh, beyond records and we were expecting some significant flooding and thankfully uh, it worked out and we had minor flooding and the guard was not needed. But those are the kinds of things that we do each and every day and prepare for in our state role. Excellent. The history of the National Guard, uh, it's, it's older than the state. The National Guard in Idaho has been involved uh, in every conflict, uh, both in the territory um, before Idaho was a state and worldwide, as you can see from the slide. Um, no theater that we haven't deployed to uh, during the Vietnam period, the engineers that were at that time headquartered in Lewiston were mobilized and deployed to Vietnam. That was the largest guard unit that was deployed 
in Vietnam during the Vietnam conflict. Um, so we have a history of deploying in support of our nation and in support of our president, dating back as far as, as Vietnam and, of course, before that, World War II, Korea. Um, as you can see, the last few years, uh, as uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan started, uh, we, have, we have deployed multiple units there. Uh, we will talk specifically about the brigade today, but I also want to make sure you understand that the Air National Guard and other units, particularly the aviation uh, battalion within the Army National Guard, have deployed multiple times to both of these theaters as well. At this point, more than 4,000 Idaho soldiers and airmen have deployed since 9-11. Let's talk now specifically about the Army National Guard. Next slide, please. You can see from the map of Idaho, these are the locations of units throughout the state of Idaho. So we go from the northern border, essentially, to the southeast down in Preston and, and everywhere in between. Uh, those cities on the map representing the dark blue colors, like Pocatello, Twin Falls, Boise, Lewiston, those are, are uh, locations where we have battalion headquarters. Next slide. Our unit strength, we have uh, our unit strength authorized for next fiscal year, starting 1 October, is 3,520 soldiers in the Idaho Army National Guard. So you can see the soldiers and the numbers that are assigned to our two largest units, the 116th Brigade and the uh, Army Aviation Group, flying Blackhawks, Apaches, and the C-12 that we came over on today. The two largest units by far, they make up roughly 75% of the members of the Idaho National Guard. Excellent. We'll move in to talk a little bit about the 116th uh, itself. We'll, we'll cover these topics here as listed on the slide. Next slide. This is the major equipment that you will find uh, part of the 116th Brigade today. As you go through the slides, or as I go through them, and as I refer to the 116th, at times you'll see it referenced as the 116th Cavalry Brigade. Sometimes it's the 116th Heavy Combat Brigade Team. Basically, the 116th has been part of Idaho for years and years. It's undergone equipment changes and name changes, and depends on what period of time the slide talks to is what the exact name of the unit is. This is the equipment that we have today. Uh, primarily, it's a heavy brigade, which means it's equipped with the M1A1 tank and the Bradley fighting vehicle, the two, the two pieces of equipment in the upper left-hand corner. Um, the, the unit, the 116th, has such a high reputation and has done such an outstanding job that as they now get home from this recent tour in Iraq, they will go through new equipment training. The M1A2 tank will be modified, and it will become actually the M1A2 SEP tank, which is a system-enhanced uh, tank. That's the, newest, that's the newest tank that the United States Army has, and Idaho will be the only brigade that gets that new tank. Along with that will be the Bradley Fighting Vehicle, the latest and greatest of the fighting vehicle 
Again, Idaho will be the only brigade. There's uh, 10 heavy brigades in the National Guard, and Idaho will be the only one that gets equipped with that equipment. Uh, so you can see all the various the sundry vehicles that go with the brigade, and they're stationed all around the state. The one, I, one other that I would call your attention to is in the bottom uh, right corner of the slide, and that's the Shadow and Raven. So it's a heavy brigade full of tanks and full of up-armored Humvees and Bradley fighting vehicles, but it has its own mini Air Force within the brigade, and these are UAVs. Uh, this is a new addition to the brigade, and these vehicles and their operators were also deployed as part of the 116th this past deployment. In fact, they, they operated in a little bit different location, but they deployed right with the brigade and supported them with uh, the uh, intelligence gathered from these UAVs. This map depicts the makeup of the brigade itself. The, the 116th is made up of units from three states, Montana, Idaho, and Oregon. Uh, most of the units and soldiers are in Idaho, but it is a, a three-state organization. Uh, and that, that brings some challenges to the leadership and to the brigade itself. Um, training, um, money, equipping, recruiting, retention. Since this is Idaho Army National Guard's primary and largest unit, it gets um, a very high priority within the state of Idaho for recruiting and retention and training. Other states may not see it that way. That is not in Oregon or Montana. That is not their primary unit. It's one of their smaller units. So at times they don't put the same emphasis on those pieces and parts of the 116th as we do. So when you take a unit like that and put them together and get them ready to go to combat, it, it brings some unique challenges. And uh, I, I think we, we have a good relationship with those states, don't get me wrong, but um, they certainly do not look at recruiting and retention in the same vein that we do here in Idaho. Next slide, please. Uh, this Idaho map shows you where those 116th units are in Idaho. The earlier Idaho map showed all the units in Idaho. These are just the locations of the pieces and parts of the 116th, including um, the battalion, or brigade support battalion right here in Idaho Falls. Next slide. So we're, we're here really to talk about 9-11 and what's happened since then. I know there was a, uh, it was referred to a little bit earlier, there's a song that came out sometime after this, I think the country artist was Alan Jackson, but the theme was, where were you when the world stopped turning? And I think every, each and every one of us can remember that day. We were having a discussion earlier, and, and years and years ago, I was talking with my father one time about, um, you know, things that happened in his lifetime that were, you know, really made an impression, and he said, I remember where I was when I heard the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor, and clearly that's a, something that he will never forget, you know. Remember where I was at when I heard President Kennedy assassinated, clearly. We'll never forget where I was at and what we were doing on this day, as I'm sure most of you won't either. Um, this day started for me uh, my way to work. We were scheduled to have a major inspection about two weeks, about the middle of October. 
we were in the final throes of doing the preparing, and I hear on the radio, radio that an airplane has crashed into the towers, and I thought, geez, you know, some pilot, uh, you know, can't, can't find left from right. How could he miss a big, tall building on a clear day? And by the time I got to work, the second impact had happened. So I immediately went to our command post. And the ironic thing was, in this preparation for the inspection, we had a team come in and uh, kind of look over our shoulders. We were going through our drills. And one of the inspection team members said, don't worry about those drills. We won't, we won't grade you on those drills or look at those items because those are relics left over from the Cold War. These were things like securing bases, evacuating people, dispersing airplanes and equipment. Little did I know that later that day we would go through all of those procedures at Gallon Field. Next slide. I think our, all of us really probably went from state of shock, tragedy, how could this happen? By the time the second airplane hit, or even the third airplane into the Pentagon, we knew something was drastically wrong, and we were no kidding being attacked. So what happened again in my life, in the life of the guard? The first thing we were told, messages were lockdown installations, lockdown bases. So literally at Gowan Field at Boise, we went through and we sent every single person home and locked that place down, put barriers up everywhere. We augmented all of our security police uh, with additional people, weapons loaded, and we really didn't know what to do. I mean, we were, we were being told to prepare to move your equipment and your people out. Uh, they were going to tell us where. Uh, but that, that's how we had gone from absolutely this beautiful nice bright blue day in Boise just like it is here today to this state of unknown shock and uh, get ready to go to war because we're at war with somebody we just don't know who yet. Um, next slide please. And the next. These images I'm sure are burned in all of our minds and, and we'll never never forget them. Uh, go back. Uh, this slide right here, just leave this up for a second. So I was the wing commander at the time, so I'm looking for my boss, General Jack Kane. He was the adjutant general at the time. Well, gosh, he happened to be out of town. Where was he? Well, he was in the middle of this building when it got hit, in a meeting. And uh, he tells the same story. He's in a meeting, and he somebody comes in and says, hey, there's just been an airplane into the towers. And he said, yeah, well, okay, you know, so they keep going, and it was the second airplane hit the tower, something is wrong, and so the meeting adjourns, and pretty soon it's um, boom, you know, and there's the smoke and the dust, and and the, the Pentagon has been hit. So he's out of town. Of course, all cell phone, all communication goes down because all the circuits are immediately overloaded. So I can't talk to him. He can't talk to us. He doesn't know what's happening out in Idaho. He eventually made his way home a couple days later um, with a couple of other active duty generals that were headed to the West Coast. Um, I remember Governor Kempthorne calling, actually coming to Gowan Field and, and saying, if they're attacking government buildings, um, 
where should I go? What should we do here at state government? So we actually made some plans on the spot of where we would accommodate him and his staff there at Gallant Field. I can tell you since that, we've developed some pretty rigid plans about how all that will work. But at that point in time, nobody ever really anticipated an attack on this country. And uh, so it was a, it's really a wake-up call for everybody. So as I mentioned, the first thing we did was ramp up security. Uh, up to 9-11, at most bases, all bases, forts throughout the nation, if you had a little sticker on your car that you typically got when you signed into a base, uh, just had the name of the base, it could be Gallon Field, it could be Hill Air Force Base, it could be wherever you were assigned, that's really all you needed to get down and off the base. Well, I can tell you that that day has never returned. Uh, we went from threat condition normal, we call it, to threat condition delta, which means you are under attack in a matter of about 30 minutes. Uh, we had a lot of confused people. We sent them home. They didn't know when they should come back to work, um, how they would get back on the base. Uh, but that was the first big change for the, for the National Guard. In addition to that, Gowan was really the easier piece. The next piece was, well, how do we secure the armories in Rexburg, in Idaho Falls, in Pocatello, in Post Falls, in Bonner's Ferry? What do we do about security there? Uh, there, were, there was no, uh, no barriers in place. There were no methods to secure those locations. And a lot of those locations, or at least some of those locations, have armories, or not armories, but arms vaults where they store weapons and things like that. Well, the last thing we wanted was somebody to try and get into one of those and seal a bunch of weapons. So again, we put soldiers on duty armed in those different armories. And we did the best we could to protect them from some kind of a terrorist event. You also might remember that the airports all of a sudden now were, you know, once they started flying again, it was a, it was a very difficult issue about how to secure them. So we put uh, Army National Guard soldiers on duty and armed them and put them at uh, various airports throughout the state of Idaho. Again, they, they weren't like the modern TSA people. They were searching. That was a, still an airport requirement or an FAA requirement. But they were there as a show of force and to take whatever action they needed to prevent a hostile action. We also, um, at the request of Governor Kempthorne, um, secured the Capitol and put barriers and, and things in place around the Capitol. So we could protect that facility and the people that work there as best we could. And we had armed guards down there for a considerable amount of time. So from the National Guard perspective, that was the first few days, that's what we were doing, figuring out how we were going to get these people, what statuses they were going to be on, how we were going to arm them, how we were going to continue this for an indefinite period of time, 24 hours a day. So let me back up just a little bit now. Um, what did, the, what did the 116th, what was their life like before 9-11? Their life was uh, good. Being in the Guard was great. The Army National Guard at that time was part of the Strategic Reserve. So in the Army's mindset, they would handle all the conflicts. But when the big war happened with Mother Russia coming across the borders into Germany, 
the army would be there in place and they would hold them off until we could mobilize the guard, train them, and ship them over there. And so the level of training, the level of equipment, the level of money was far, far less than today because they were, they were a strategic reserve. We'll get to them sometime when we need them. And so our guardsmen typically uh, spent two to three weeks every summer going through what we call AT or annual training. And most of that was done here at the Orchard Training Area south of Gowan Field. It's, for, it's a great, next slide please, it's a great training area. It's great for maneuvering heavy equipment, tanks, Bradley's the kind of equipment that the brigade was, was uh, equipped with. And so guys would assemble here in the unit. They'd go to AT for two and a half, three weeks. Uh, refresh themselves on some gunnery skills and they'd come back and go back to their jobs. And that was the Army, the Army Guard. Next slide. Well, that changed significantly again. Uh, obviously, uh, everybody knows uh, we started uh, Operation Enduring Freedom. We went into Afghanistan, uh, routed the Taliban, and pushed them out of the country. Uh, we then started Operation Iraqi Freedom went in to topple and take out uh, Saddam Hussein as a dictator, free up that nation. Well, the Army soon realized that this is a pretty heavy load we have, and, and we may be at this for a while, and so active Army is not big enough to make this work uh, the way we want to. And we could do like we did in World War II. We could just send them, and when it's over, we could bring them home, but nobody thought that was a good idea. So how can we incorporate the Guard and the Reserve into this mix. So they came up with this model here, and this is a, anybody that's ever been in an army or ever been around it, they love charts like this. This is the simplest one I could find, trust me. But it, what they, it's what they call the R4Gen model, and it's the way the army is going to generate forces to fight the war. And basically what all of this stuff tells you is they, they put you in a five-year cycle. So year one, um, you're one, you're just in place. Um, you don't really do much. You stay current on maybe your individual weapons and some small tactics. But as you build to year four, you get more training, you get more qualifications, you get your gunnery done, all those things that, that you need to do to be able to go into combat. The final, the final event you would do in year four is what we call a mission rehearsal exercise. You actually would go to some place some large um, training area, and we, we tried to get this done at Gowan Field a number of times, but it, since it's not an Army range, they don't think it's good enough. So we, de we would deploy the unit to an active Army in installation, and they would get evaluated by the active Army, and they would be certified that, yes, this unit is fit and ready to go to combat. And then year five, you would actually deploy in theater. So that's the Army model, and that model has served us pretty well and is still in use today. And so you'll see what that means is about every fifth or sixth year, you come back into the queue where the Army wants you to deploy. And if you look at the 116th, they deployed in 2004 or 2005. They deployed in 2010 and 2011. They're right on that five-year model. Next slide. So finally we get to the point where Army says, okay, 116th, it's your, it's your turn. 
Um, we weren't the first Army Brigade. We certainly weren't the last. We were just in, in, the, in the hopper and in the mix. What they have been able to do and what they promised to do is to let us know 270 days before we have to go to the MOPE station. So our soldiers and their families get a lot of advance notice, and they get a lot of, a lot of advance notice to their employers. And they've been pretty good about doing that. They've, they've violated it a couple of times, but really that's, that's what they have tried to do. So the 116th was mobilized the first time uh, for Operation Enduring Freedom, or Operation Iraqi Freedom 3. That was the period they were there. That was what it was called. Um, that mobilization included more than 4,000 soldiers from more than 15 states. Again, the predominant number was from Idaho, but a very large organization. Um, and, and part of that was because they, they didn't want the 116th to necessarily do the exact same mission that they tra train for every day here in Iraq. There wasn't going to be this tank-on-tank -tank battle, and that's what a heavy brigade is, is built to do. Tank-on-tanks and, and ar uh, armored vehicles, uh, and it, there wasn't that kind of war in Iraq. So they were going to be doing some, some slightly different things. That's why we brought in some other units from, from other states. Um, not at our request. We don't get to. We don't get to decide that. Army says this is the package we need. This is the time we need it. You know, the main package is the one sixteenth, but we want this piece and that piece and that piece because we want those missions done as well. So that's how those force packages really get built. So, like I said, over four thousand soldiers initially deployed from Idaho down to Fort Bliss, Texas. They took all of their equipment with them. Now imagine this, 111 railroad cars full of equipment. That's what we shipped down to Fort Bliss. And that's just the armor um, and the Bradleys and the Humvees and things like that. I mean, all the individual stuff was lugged down there on soldiers' backs. Next slide. This was the first large mobilization Idaho had experienced. I mentioned earlier we had, we had a battalion that went to Vietnam uh, years and years ago, but this was the first large-scale mobilization. So there were things that we had never done before, again, as part of the strategic reserve that we weren't required to do or asked to do. But you can imagine in 4,000 soldiers that now had to, had to meet Army standards some of the things that we had to do, a lot of medical issues dental issues, glasses, uh, chem warfare training. We knew how to handle weapons. We knew how to do gunnery. All these things that we really never worried about because we were always here in Idaho now came to the forefront. Family issues. I mean, the longest soldiers had been separated from families before was probably three or four weeks or if they went to a school for a couple months. Now we're looking at not just a year but 18 months from start to finish, um, with 12 months being boots on the ground, which means actually 12 months in theater. So a very long deployment. So a lot of family issues. A lot of single parents. What do they do with their kids? How do they take care of them? Do they have somebody that's designated to do that? Powers of attorney. You know, who's going to have authority to sign for me and to do those things? Uh, we did wills. Um, and then there were the jobs. What about my job? How am I going to 
you know, what, what's going to happen to my job? So that first time through, there were just so many issues that we had never had to deal with before. We had great people, and we had a lot of great support. But you can imagine that many soldiers with that many individual issues that all had to be resolved before we left or while we were at Fort Bliss or even the next stop, which we'll talk about in a second. So our next stop, we went to Fort Bliss. We did a lot of additional training. We, we, we learned how to do some of the missions that we normally didn't train on here at Gallon Field. From there, they shipped the whole brigade to Fort Polk, Louisiana. That was a shorter stay, um, but that was really where we did the final rehearsal exercises and then that final evaluation that I talked about earlier, where an active duty Army general officer could say to the president, to the Secretary of Defense, this unit is certified and ready to go to combat. And that's what happened at Fort Polk. Soldiers, um, soldiers maintain an outstanding attitude. Many of them um, were anxious. I mean, anxious to go. The families were anxious, anxious about what was going to happen to them. So, um, obviously, a lot of distraught families, a lot of uh, sad goodbyes. Uh, next slide. Um, you know, the, the, the farewell ceremonies were touching. We, we had them all over the state. Uh, there were some wives who came down to Fort Polk for a day or two, even though we encouraged them not to do that. Unbelievable how many last-minute marriages we had, you know, how many proposals, uh, uh, things like that. Uh, but then there finally was just nothing but goodbye and, and Godspeed. Next. Uh, all the soldiers were, the, the equipment all went by ship, and it went uh, uh, shortly after leaving um, or shortly after the mission rehearsal, it was all put on ship and shipped over there so they could receive it in Kuwait, uh, draw it out, and literally drive up to their uh, place in, in Kuwait. Or in Iraq, I'm sorry. Um, all the soldiers, or the predominant, went on some charter commercial flight, load them up and, and go nonstop. Uh, many of you probably know the mission in, in the first deployment uh, was in the central part of Iraq. Uh, the brigade actually was given charge of two of the provinces up there um, with, uh, with a variety of missions. Um, most notably, I think, was keeping the peace and ensuring that the elections that were to be held were done peaceably and they were not disrupted by insurgents or bad guys. Um, they helped a lot in establishing the early forms of government that uh, that were prominent in that part of Iraq. Again, the strength of the guard is were citizens one day and soldiers the next day. So in addition to the kinetic operations, the real kicking indoors and being in close combat with bad guys, we also, the brigade did an awful lot helping establish a judicial system and helping establish local governments and and helping to run cities. Uh, and the expertise of the guardsmen was so valuable there because we had judges, we had lawyers, we had doctors, we had engineers. And we they really made a difference in that part of Iraq uh, while they were there. General Casey, who was the uh, commander of all of CENTCOM, both theaters at that time, said the 116th model, or the 116th performance should be the model for the way we do 
those kinds of operations in a combat theater. How to set up a new government because the because again of that guardsman experience, that civilian one day, soldier the next day. Next. The, one of the challenging pieces of the deployment was they were kind of at a crossroads of three ethnic groups, the Sunnis, uh, the Turkomans, and, and the um, Kurds. And of course, they don't like each other at all. And so General Gayhart, as the brigade commander, that was one of his big challenges, is get those guys in a room and, you know, thumb them in the chest and say, this is the way it's going to be, and I don't want to see any more of this, and I don't want to see any more of that. So it was very, very a dynamic situation, and they did, a, did an awesome job. Next slide. So what did they do? Uh, first of all, it was a full-spectrum combat mission. So they did everything from, as we talked about, setting up governments to kicking in doors, uh, weapons loaded. Stability operations, stabilizing the area, keeping the bad guys from taking the upper hand. Next. Defensive operations. There were attacks. They were attacked a lot. There were a lot of convoys being attacked. So defensive operations, another part of the Army. Next. Offensive operations, uh, going after bad guys, going after high-value targets, uh, all those missions that were assigned to them by division headquarters. And security operations. Next slide, please. Um, and, and that's... Uh, Basically, making sure that the elections did come off, making sure that, um, you know, people weren't targeted for assassination and, and you name it, all the, all the bad things that can go on in a combat environment like that. So very, very successful deployment, very su successful implementation for the 116th. Next. And so finally... Um, the 12 months boots on the ground is over with and they get the word to come home. Um, so after about 18 months, uh, 12 months in Iraq itself, in central Iraq, um, we started receiving soldiers back. Um, these guys and gals uh, did an awesome job. They're battle tested. They were weary but proud and, and happy about what they had done to support this nation and to support the war. Remember, they were, they were there and helped carry off the first successful elections in the country of Iraq for years and years. And I'm sure you saw the, you know, remember seeing the Iraqis with the ink on their finger where they got to vote. And uh, very, very rewarding experience. There were, there clearly, you know, there were, there were uh, combat losses and there were all those other negative things that can happen in combat. But I believe if you ask them to a soldier, they were, they were so proud of what they had done um, and, and were so proud of them. You know, they, 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 they gave up their day jobs, as we said, and spent 18 months um, learning how to go to combat and then employing themselves in combat to make a real difference in the world and for a whole nation. And I think it's, it, it's awesome what happened. Next. Okay, now we come back to this slide. So we've essentially gone through this cycle once. Now we find ourselves over here again in this reset mode. That's the year one is the reset. So that's what the 116th will be entering now, reset. And I can tell you not a lot will happen this year. We will not task them heavily. They will still come to the, their monthly UTA assemblies. 
probably starting in about January. There will be some new equipment that they get trained on. Uh, there will be some schools that they will attend, but not not much beyond that. And that's by design. That's to let them get back to uh, being citizens again, giving up that soldier and going back to being a citizen. Next slide, please. Unfortunately, it seems like we go through that five-year cycle, you know, the fifth year is a long, long year. Years one, two, three, and four just zoom by. But so we we fast forward and we're into uh, 2009. Once again, we get the notification that the 116th is going to be mobilized again. Again, the destination is Iraq. This time, the location is significantly different, and the mission is significantly different. And the best news was the time is also significantly shorter. The Army now has decided that they will not do mobilizations in the Guard that last more than 12 months. So any training that you have to do um, has to be part of that 12 months. So actually now the goal is you will spend about 10 months on the ground uh, in, in theater. Okay. So the first stop, mobilization was much like last time. First time we went to Fort Bliss, this time to Camp Shelby down in Mississippi. Uh, next slide, please. Spent about to just short of two months down there getting trained up, had the mission rehearsal exercise. We're ready to go to combat. And all too soon again, we're departing. Um, next slide, please. Um, I will I will tell you, though, that this time it was much easier than the first time. Uh, almost, well, slightly over 50% of the soldiers that deployed had gone before, either with the 116th, uh, with the active army, or with another guard unit. Uh, second of all, all those family issues, although we still had them, we knew so much better w what, was, what the issues were going to be, and we had the staff on board to take care of them. So, so much smoother operation there. Next slide. Here we are in Iraq. Same thing, charter airlines. No equipment was taken this time. We didn't need 110 railroad cars. They took individual weapons and the individual body armor, helmets, all that stuff, but no heavy equipment. Um, arrive in Iraq, the destination this time was Victory Base Complex, Camp Victory. It's a large, large military installation, about 50 miles in circumference, right outside of Baghdad at the airport. That was the location for most of the 116th. Uh, we had a couple hundred that also went to a place called the International Zone, the Green Zone, where all the diplomats and all those folks lived. So only about eight miles away by road, but the road was so hazardous that they wouldn't let anybody drive back and forth unless you were in some kind of an armored vehicle. This was home. Next slide. Not exactly the Hilton, but this is where they lived. Uh, these are called Chews. They're little... They're trailer houses with a window and air conditioner, and not much else. Next. Uh, the missions, again, were not the typical missions of the 116th. Um, next slide. We did a lot of security checkpoints. We ran a hotel on the Victory Base where most of the VIPs and the celebrities who come to entertain the troops stay. Um, next slide, please. We did convoy security. Next, please. We secured the international zone, and of course, no matter where you went, every, obviously everybody's carrying a weapon. There's a lot of dust, dirt, and every, every day people are cleaning weapons, and, and this is just such a common sight that you see over there. Next. 
The other thing we did is because of the winding down of operations, we closed a lot of the Victory Base complex was this giant facility. We closed a lot of the individual camps. We had people that were like mayors that ran these little cities. We closed those down because the number of troops uh, is, is ramping down. Next slide. So after 10 months in theater, not quite the same kind of kinetic operations that we had seen in the first operation or the first deployment, it's time to come home and we just finished uh, welcoming soldiers home. Um, see, earlier this week we had a flight into Boise with 60 some people and that's the, lot, the last of the large flights that will come home. Good part about coming home is the reunions and the happy faces, the tears of joy, not the tears of sadness. Um, let me briefly touch on when they do come home. Uh, you can go to the next slide, Steve. When they do come home, uh, you've heard some consternation about they get back in the States and it takes them so long to get home. There is a, there's an Army program, a demobilization program that takes place at Fort Lewis, Washington. It's between 10 and 14 days, and it's, it's done for a reason. It, for one, it gives the soldier time to decompress. He, he's been working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, um, you know, pretty high tempo pace. And he needs some time to kind of wind down before he goes home. He needs time to address the medical issues, uh, any uh, psychological issues that he may have because of the deployment, things like that. So that's, a, that's a, a known and scheduled period of time. And all the specialists, all the help that they need are contained up there at Fort Lewis. What we want is when that soldier gets home, he's, he's done decompressing and he's ready to go back and integrate with his family. And, and sometimes that takes folks some longer than others. I can tell you all of, this, all of the 116th members are now back in the, in the States. There's still 118 that haven't come back to the city they left from. Um, about 87 of those are in a unit, a uh, medical a unit up at Fort Lewis that we'll talk about in a bit. Some went to a school immediately upon arriving. So let me just talk briefly now about, we've come and gone twice, what some of the impacts have been, um, both in the financial and in the human. For Idaho, uh, as you can see, we've had 15 combat casualties, uh, 15 Idaho kids who um, won't be coming home. Three seriously injured, and by that I mean three that have lost significant limbs. Um, one from the last uh, conflict or the last deployment, two from the first deployment. Uh, as you can see, six up here with TBI, traumatic brain injuries. Uh, those, those are very traumatic, and they're getting um, ongoing help. A couple of those are still uh, being evaluated and treated from the first deployment more than five years ago. Uh, many, many soldiers have been exposed to traumatic brain injuries. That's like a concussion. It can happen in high school football. It can happen too close to an explosive going off. Uh, it can happen in a rollover. You can bang your head. So there's lots of reasons it can happen. And most of those will heal by themselves in a, in a little bit of time. Those more severe ones uh, will be uh, held up at Fort Lewis and be treated. There's, a, there's a, a list of criteria for every soldier. If you're within X number of yards of this kind of explosive or that kind of explosive or you're in this kind of event, you must be evaluated whether you want to or not. And then a, 
a professional will determine whether you need more help or not. And then, of course, the PTS, the post-traumatic stress, that's yet to be determined. Uh, this, this most recent deployment, since it wasn't as kinetic or as, uh, you know, in your face, so to speak, as the first one, we think there will be a, a reduced uh, amount of this, but, you know, it's, uh, we don't know for sure. Time will only tell. Um, for those soldiers who do have medical issues, there's these, these systems have all been put in place since the first deployment. There's now a warrior transition unit, and if you need a continual medical care, if you got a bad knee and you need knee surgery or if you uh, need some kind of medical treatment, they will hold you at Fort Lewis in Washington, if possible, until you get through that treatment. Uh, you know, we've had guys that need new joints. Uh, you know, they carry uh, somewhere around an 80 to 100-pound pack, and you do that every day for 12 hours for a year. And it can easily cause shoulder problems, especially on some of our more senior members. So all of that stuff is being treated and done up there. Next slide. There's another program they've started, and this is a community-based warrior transition unit. The idea is if... If you don't, if you can get the same medical care closer to your community, to let those soldiers come home and get the care locally. Now, it sounds better than it seems to work, because for Idaho, the uh, community-based warrior training unit is in Utah. So, it may be a little closer if you're in southeast Idaho. If you're in northern Idaho, it's actually closer to go to Fort Lewis. But so we work those on an individual cases, and we have soldiers at both of those locations still being treated for injuries. Next slide. Um, one, of our, uh, one of our giant concerns, our main concerns as soldiers come home um, is I, I think everybody's aware of the suicide and, and this epidemic, it seems like, throughout America. It also happens here in Idaho. So we have, a, we have built a very strong, what we call warrior-to-warrior program. We have, we have a Got this in all the units in Idaho. We have trained people. We have trained them what to look for. Uh, we have hotlines, and uh, we are worried about these young men and women coming home and, and having to scale down, maybe not having a job, and uh, taking some, some action against themselves that, that would be harmful. And so we have a very, very robust, as does the active Army, program to try to combat suicides. Next. Uh, also part of the human toll um, is just the, un un the employment uncertainty. Um, the first time the brigade came back, the economy was good. There were a lot of jobs, and it wasn't that much of an issue. Obviously, we're coming, they're coming home. The economy is not that good. Unemployment is a little bit higher. Uh, and and that, that adds to their uncertainty, their anxiety, and their depression and possibly taking some harmful action against themselves. So we have been working very hard. We started this six or seven months ago, working with the governor. He has his Hire One Vet program. We have recruiting and retention um, NCOs throughout Idaho at all of our, our unit locations. And we have, we have told those guys not to worry so much about recruiting because our strength is over 100%, but to work in the local communities to find jobs. They know the employers, they know the community, and they have visited almost every employer throughout Idaho to talk to them about jobs and why not, why they should be hiring vets, what veterans bring to their job. And I can tell you, I think we've been pretty successful. We have some groups that have stood up and said, I don't need anybody, but I'm going to hire this many. And we have one of our employers, uh, 
down in Blackfoot said, I'll hire six of them. I don't need them, but I'm going to hire them. We have a mining operation actually in northern Nevada. said, I'll, ta- I'll hire 50 soldiers. So we, we, have, we have seen some success. Um, General Gayhart was just on a radio program a couple days ago in Boise, and he was talking about the jobs program, and he said, if anybody wants to hire a soldier, you know, give me a call. Well, th- later that morning, he had a call, and the guy said, I need a welder tomorrow. I had the guy quit today. Do you have a welder that you can get me tomorrow? And we found a guy who wants to be a welder or is a welder, and he's got a job. So that kind of stuff, and I'm really, really pleased by all the employers and all that support that's happened in Idaho. But we still, we have, uh, you know, 400 plus who said they will need a job, and so we are working hard to fill those. We also have developed a very extensive family support program. Um, go to the next slide. This, I hope you can read it, but none of, none of these positions were in place the first time the brigade came home um, because we didn't, nobody realized how much we needed them. The active Army soldiers have all this on their installations. It's not, it was not in place for the Guard. It has all been put in place since. So we have family coordinators throughout the state located all of our key areas throughout the state. And we do all kinds of integration training for husbands and wives. We do a program called Strong Bonds, where we actually let the couples go away to a retreat for the weekend. Uh, at, at, we just had one in Sun Valley, and we've had them in McCall and all over the state, to let those families get together. And at those, at those retreats, we have financial counselors, we have psychologists, we have marriage counselors, we have all kinds of expertise for these soldiers to bring them home, to get them back into society. So tremendous, tremendous strides made in this program for our families. Next slide, please. This is, this is where we have these family coordinators. Not only now, but during the deployment, this is always the first point of contact, these facts, as we call them, for any kind of issues. And we've had, we've, we had a young woman in... Uh, Pocatello that's last spring when we had all the rain, her basement started flooding and washed out the wall. She called her FAC. Her FAC called some other friend. She knew him before. We knew it. We had three construction companies. Um, not supposed to be advertising, but one of our large chain Home Depot said, we're going to donate the, the materials it need, and they went out and they essentially rebuilt her house. So those facts, again, they're, they're critical, and they're the, the key touch point for the families and the soldiers. So uh, I know I'm long-winded, I'm sorry, but what's changed, uh, I mean, an awful lot has changed. The, the National Guard, Idaho in particular, the 116th, we have gone from this state where we were part of a strategic reserve, we'll call you when we need you, we'll take six or eight months to get you ready to go, and then we'll send you to what we call today an operational reserve. We are operational, we are trained, we are equipped, and we're ready today. A huge transition, huge transition. Our family resiliency is, is so much greater than it was five or six years ago. Families now have been through this. They know what to expect. Uh, the connectivity is obviously a lot better. I mean, every, every time I had a family support meeting and I'd ask a wife, how often do you talk to your husband? She's, oh, two or three times a day. I mean, Skype and some of these things are wonderful, and, and they really help that connectivity. We had soldiers that actually 
uh, made a point to every night meet with their children on Skype and do homework together. So those kinds of things have really, really helped the family resiliency. And we have this whole network of care that we talked about um, spread throughout the state with these professionals. We pay for them. We hire them. They're on our staff, and they're free to all the soldiers and their families to use. ESGR, I haven't talked much. That's Employer Support of the Guard and Reserve. Very strong ESGR program in Idaho, and they work with employers because our employers, like our families and our soldiers, give up a lot. They let these soldiers go off for 12 to 18 months, then bring them back to work. So we try and do everything we can to support those employers, and they have been very, very generous with their employees to the Guard. And finally, our, our pitch to the Army is this is a sustainable model. The Guard can do this every five years. We can continue to do this. We don't want to go back down to the strategic reserve. That's not a model that we want to be. We want to be part, soldiers want to be part of an operational force. It gives them meaning and value in what they do. So my final thoughts would be soldiers respond to the call, not once but twice in the last number of years. They serve with distinction and they've returned home. And all of Idaho should be very, very proud of what they've done. I know we are, and they're proud of it, and I think most Idahoans are very proud of it. General, uh, let me thank you on behalf of the Idaho Falls City Club for being with us this afternoon. Uh, Idaho is proud of you, proud of our 116th Brigade, and proud of our National Guard in general, and... Uh, uh, we, we thank you all for your very active involvement in this nation's security and in this state's security. Without further ado, and just wanting you to know that this audience has showed enormous interest in what you have brought to us by way of a message today, again, we thank you and, uh, and thank the Guard. We're proud of all of you. Thanks for being here. Thank you.